If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, I spoke to the historian John Hardman about one of French history's most notorious figures, Marie Antoinette. John is the author of Marie Antoinette, The Making of a French Queen, and he came to our Bristol office to tell me more about why Marie Antoinette's story is worthy of re-examination. When you say Marie Antoinette to a lot of people, they think of extravagant parties, they think of preposterous hairstyles, but your new biography focuses on a slightly different aspect of her role, which was her political influence. So to start us off, how much political power did Marie Antoinette wield? And why do you think that this aspect of her role might have been forgotten about compared to other things? Yes, I think the thing, uh, people have uh, this impression of Marie Antoinette eating cake, putty trionon, dresses, gruesome death. And that is how 99.99 of the many biographies of her, of her presented it. But the thing is that she did have a political role that was thrust upon her. Uh, she didn't seek it, but it was thrust upon her. And the reason people haven't dealt with this because you have to understand the politics of the period, which are very complex and were very secret. Uh, no minutes kept of, of cabinet meetings. So I, having discovered that, having worked for a lifetime on that, I'm now, I was able, which I don't think anybody else has been, to be able to actually look at this aspect of her life. Now, what one has to say is that for uh, the first 10, 12 years, um, she was a pleasure seeker, but it was in a frenetic way. She was, it was a sort of merciless laughter, and she was trying almost to, to throw scraps of meat at the wolf at the door. Um, but then the, the key point came in 1787 when her husband, the king, Louis XVI, presented a grand reform program to a, an assembly of notables or aristocrats, and they rejected it. If it had been implemented, it probably would have saved France from revolution, but it wasn't. After this, Louis suffered what we would call a nervous breakdown. And he would be silent for long periods, apathetic, all the things. It's very difficult to put a sort of modern psychological label to a person in the past, but he showed all the symptoms. And Marie Antoinette had to simply step into the breach. And she had uh, her man appointed prime minister, a man called Lomeni de Brienne. And he tried to reform the regime, but there was too much opposition. And so this made her unpopular because everyone knew she was the power behind the throne. Everyone knew she started attending cabinet committee. What motivated Marie Antoinette politically? If we characterised her politically, you suggest that perhaps she wasn't actually as reactionary to begin with as you might first assume. 
No, that's true. Because when she first, her first essay uh, attempts uh, reforming the regime were to introduce equal taxation, both between the classes and between the provinces. That's just important. Brittany paid very little, for example. Uh, the Ile de France a lot. So that so so she was a reformer, and she was brought down paradoxically by the aristocracy. Now this meant that their what their goal and achievement was to call the convocation of the nearest equivalent of to our English Parliament. It was called the Estates General, and it hadn't been summoned for six, since sixteen fourteen. Now they thought the aristocracy they would dominate it, but. People have been listening to the king's message and the queen's message. And suddenly the commoners, or they were called third estate, they wanted equal taxation and they wanted political power. And so when uh, Marie, Marie Antoinette's uh, minister fell in August 1788, she brought back a popular reformer called Necker. And he wanted to increase uh, the, the voting power of the third estate, the commons, in the estates general. He came across opposition in the council and was ready to resign. But Marie Antoinette said, no, stay in place and I will personally come to the council and support you. This had never been done before. No queen of France, that is queen consort, queen regents, mothers of the king, they had. But no queen of France had ever attended council. And she did. And she supported Necker. And they agreed that the representation of the commoners, the third estate, would be doubled in the estates general. Um, that was um, the first hurdle. But the voting system was, was that each of the estates or orders, clergy, nobility and commons, just had one vote. And though, so they would be outvoted. So the next stage was that they should get voting by what's called voting by head rather than by order. In other words, the, the votes would be counted individually, in which case the third estate would be dominant because there would be defections from the liberal nobility and the clergy, because the cure were sons of peasants. Um, they'd simply exchange the, the peasant's smock for a cassock. How would you characterise Marie Antoinette's political decision-making? Do you think that could be partly to blame for the monarchy's downfall? Yes and no. So far, I, in the story, we've, we've noticed that Marie Antoinette was supporting the commons. But round about this, the late spring of 1789, just before the estate general met, she became convinced that the third estate were going to take power not just from the aristocracy and clergy, but from the king, from the crown. Thereafter, and this is there was a, a sort of volte-face, she became more reactionary. And it was, and having had Necker appointed, she also was as responsible as anybody for his dismissal in on the twelfth of July. 1789, which led to the fall of the Bastille. Hereafter, she was unpopular. So she'd moved from popularity, although she was, she was bad at public relations. People didn't realise the role she played in helping the Third Estate. 
And in any case, it was overlaid by everyone knew that she was behind the dismissal of Necker and therefore it would seem responsible for the fall of the Bastille. I want to just pick up on your point there about public relations um, because this is woven throughout the book. Why was she so unpopular and was she? how aware was she of that? Uh, she she was aware of it. Um, partly, I mean, there was a there was a scandal called um, the Diamond Necklace Affair, which I won't go into too much. But let's say it's probably the greatest heist in history. And the Cardinal de Rohan was tricked into thinking that the Queen wanted to buy a necklace. Uh, from the crown jewellers without telling the king, and it was worth 1.6 million francs. Now, she was completely innocent. On the other hand, at the start of her reign, 1774 to 6, she did spend an awful lot of money on diamonds, not that sort of money, say half a million. So she had form. And so it was easy uh, to convince the cardinal and to convince the public that she really was behind it all and she wanted to snaffle the necklace for herself. She loved diamonds. They knew she loved diamonds. When um, when the, the mob reached Versailles in, uh, in October 1789, one of the things they wanted to see was the room paved with diamonds in the Petit Trianon. Of course, there wasn't. But they just said, where is it? She was already unpopular and she simply didn't know. She wanted to be popular. She wanted to be loved, but she didn't know how to do it. She just wasn't very good um, at managing it. Um, so that's that. Another thing that um, was always used against her was the fact that she had an Austrian background. She grew up in the Austrian court. Why was that such good ammunition against her? For, because Austria was the national enemy. They had recently, in what's called the diplomatic revolution, changed sides and become allies. Um, and But this had led to a disaster, France losing a lot of colonies, Canada, dominance in India, all sorts of things. And so the alliance was blamed for it. And, of course, she was the pledge of the alliance. And, but she just happened to be the right age to marry the heir to the French throne, the Dauphin. Um, and so she was a pledge of the alliance, but also um, the corrosion of it as well. And everyone assumed that she was sending millions of pounds to her brother, uh, the Austrian emperor, Joseph II, which she wasn't. So it seems there, was a, there were a lot of stories generated about her which weren't necessarily true but really did stick. Yes, they, these stories stuck because, as with Marie Antoinette, there's always a grain of truth. She did buy diamonds, but 13 years before. She did get Joseph a small amount of money simply um, to prevent war between uh, Austria and France's ally, the Dutch Republic. And in order to buy off Austria, um, they, they were given a tiny amount of, a tiny amount of, of, of gold coins. But it was, it was assumed that it was millions and millions. And it was brought up at a trial. Uh, it was a hoary old chestnut. But as I say, there is that, there's always with her that tiny grain of truth which malice can expand. Perhaps the most famous or infamous story is, of course, the, the let them eat cake story, which you suggest perhaps is actually not only apocryphal, but not even representative of Marie Antoinette's character. Can you explain how so? Yes, I, 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 there is a certain... There is a certain insouciance about her in the early years. 
um, it has to be said. And um, spending all that money on, I mean, she, on what in one year she spent a million francs on balls, and that at a time when there is hardship in the countryside seemed bad, and she wasn't overly concerned with the lot of the common man, and so people made this contrast of uh, of her with her, her fancy headgears. Um, and uh, the people around her, and also something which I think didn't go down well. Um, in her country little house that the king gave her, the Petit Trianon, in the park, she, she had a, a model village created. And it had, for example, a pet goat and a female goat and... and um, and one was black and the other was white. And when the black one, I think, died, she wanted a replacement, but it had to be white too. And people thought that it was like what they call sort of divertissement champêtre. She was playing, playing at being a peasant woman. And this is, this is bad taste. But at the same time, uh, as I said before, this was really... Frenetic, frenetic diversion from a gnawing fear, which was there with her all the time. Um, for example, in the in the grounds of, of, of the Petit Trianon, uh, she had um, a statue erected, um, and it said um, it was a statue of death, and it said in French or Latin. Um, even in Arcadia, I am present. There is always this duality about her. Uh, and I think that's how the... The other thing is, of course, that Let the Meat Keep Cake was attributed to all sorts of queen, French queens before. It was, it was a common trope. Um, so that's that. And, and another thing, of course, is that it sticks because it sounds contemptuous in English. Uh, the French version, qu'il mange du brioche, sounds... Meaning, sort of do that. If, if there isn't enough bread, if there's enough corn, then sort of make up on eggs. Now, in French, it's not caught on. People don't say that. It's only the English version because I think cake, the K in cake is, is so contemptuous, isn't it? Let them eat cake. Qu'il mange de la brioche? No. So if we do strip back all these myths and the propaganda that surrounded Marie Antoinette and you go back to the source material and her letters, for example, what kind of woman do you find? Well, I think um, talking about letters, I think we should at this stage move on um, to what I think is the most interesting part of my book, so imagine that we've had two desperate years, fall of the Bastille, 14th of July. Um, then on the, f on the 5th of October, the mob comes to Versailles and tries to kill her. She escapes in a nightdress, just her shift. They are then dragged back to Paris um, as virtually, virtually under house arrest in the Tuileries. Then um, on the, the longest night, 30th uh, of June, 1791, they escape. They are caught. Everyone assumes they're trying to flee the country. They're not. They're trying to get a, forti a fortified town called Mormedi. And the plan is there. They will renegotiate the constitution to give the king a better role. Right. They are brought back. 
hor horrific journey. And one of the people, the, the National Assembly, the Parliament, sends commissioners to bring them back. And one is Antoine Barnave, who is the hero of my book. And when they're on this journey back, this horrendous six-day journey through dust and heat, they come to a deal. He thinks it's time, and he, he makes a speech saying, it is time to stop the revolution. He thinks if the revolution goes any further, it will end as, a, as an attack on property. And so he does a deal with Marie Antoinette. When the king had fled, he'd left behind a memorandum saying the changes he wanted made to the constitution. Barnab says, I will get those made. Provided you will get your brother, the emperor, to recognize the revolution and confirm the alliance. They, they agree, this is, far too, this is far too sensitive. We must do the whole thing by letter. So they write over the next six months, they govern the country by letter, by correspondence. Marie Antoinette would like to see Barnard more often. I mean, he is, he's highly intelligent, very good looking, very young, 29. And there is, there is undoubtedly a sexual attraction between the two, though it's never consummated, whatever people thought. Um, so Barnard gets some changes made, but not quite enough. Then the new constitution is implemented. The king is put back on his throne. He's been suspended after his escape. And it's this the period when they run the country together. And I argue it had a chance of success. But there was a war party called the Girondins who were determined to bring about war with Austria in order to smoke out Marie Antoinette's treason. They were highly responsible people, and they did. They brought about war, um, and... The monarchy couldn't survive. You know, you couldn't have somebody who is suspected of being in treasonable correspondence with the enemy. The monarchy was, was doomed and, and Barnav knew it. And Barnav um, in, in January went back home to Grenoble and he, they had a, a tearful parting that one of the few times again they, they had met. Um, and, you know, it was very, very emotional. She said, I know why you've got to go. But we don't know why he had to go. He sh we think he sh I think he should stay to help out, but he went. And the rest was a matter of time. The fall of monarchy was, was inevitable at this stage. For the first time, it was inevitable. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I, I had the popular view. I, I, didn't, I never thought she said, let me eat cake. But I did think of her, you know, as frivolous lightweight. But I then came to the conclusion that she was not as stupid as think she was quite bright. She made big mistakes, but also she could have redeemed them. So there was a point possibly where Marie Antoinette could have kept her head. Well, that's a different matter. Um, after the king had lost his, um, there was talk of um, swapping her um, for prisoners or a ransom or whatever. I mean, you have to remember that um, no queen, queen can't become, can't rule France. You know, it's got to be a male. A male. Um, and um, but this doesn't happen. And then in the year following the king's death, we're talking about January 93, things get worse and worse. The war goes badly. Robespierre enters the governing committee, the Committee of Public Safety, and he has it in for her. Um, so does David, uh, the famous painter, who's all on the police committee. 
And so by about September, they decide they're going to put her on trial. By that stage, of course, um, that the, the people aren't acquitted. Uh, there's no question of being acquitted. The only, ch I mean, the last chance of, of saving both the French, the, t if you're a king and you lose your throne, you lose your head. That's what happens always. We're talking about keeping her throne. The last chance to do that was towards the end of 91 when, as I say, the, the constitution was bedding in. Barnab and her system seemed to be working, but the war party took control. That was the point. Um, someone said it was the war that revolutionized the revolution. M important phrase. The war revolutionized the revolution. And, that, and, and, th and they were going to be collateral damage and more. Just to pick up on your point about her being put on trial, what were some of the accusations that were levelled against her? I know essentially it was a show trial, but um, still interesting to consider. It, it, it was a show trial. Um, and she actually defended herself self very well. She, as though we almost think she, she may possibly have thought there's a chance that she'd come. Louis just didn't bother. Um, he, she was quite, did quite a spirited um, defence. Of course, the most famous part of the trial, um, uh, almost of her life, was when um, David the painter and another man called Hébert went to the prison where her little boy was and persuaded him that she had molested him, taught him to masturbate and worse, and shared a bed with him. This was put up at the trial, and um, she simply looked with contempt. And then one of these dreadful jurors, you know what they're like, said, Monsieur le Président, there are always precedents, um, I noticed that the accused didn't answer Monsieur Hébert's question. She then turned and the famous lines, if I, did, if I did not answer that question, it is one that no woman should ever have to answer. On this point, I appeal to the mothers of France. And when Robespierre heard of this, isn't it enough to make her a Messalina without making her an Agrippina as well? I, I can't tell you which, which of those was a mother killer or whatever. But um, he was furious because she had... <laughs> She's achieved this propaganda coup she'd been searching from for all her life. Her last act was a superb propaganda coup. But, of course, it was too late. You know, if she could have done that before, um, that, that, that would have made a, a big difference. But, I mean, this, this is all we remember of the trial. We even forget a very spirited and clever performance in it. If you could um, identify one single political decision that she made that had the biggest impact, whether positively or negatively, what do you think it would be? I would say sort of one good and one bad. Um, and the one good, I think, would be um, backing Necker in trying to double the representation of the third estate. Um, the bad thing is having him dismissed and leading to the fall of the Bastille. You, you have written a biography previously of Louis XVI. So how do you see the relationship between him and Marie Antoinette? It was an arranged marriage, of course, and an arranged marriage with um, the daughter of the enemy. 
And Louis's father, we have to remember, Louis XV is the grandfather of Louis XVI. Louis's father hated Austria and he was terribly suspicious. So he excluded her from all political matters until he became depressed. Um, the actual physical marriage, um, it took a while for various reasons to be consummated, but once it was, there were four children. And I believe they were all his. Again, you know, everyone says that there were, there were some, but the, the, the last one, the last little boy was the son of her lover uh, at some stage, Furson, but I mean, that's another question, you know, when and were, were they lovers and when, that's, that's another question. Um, I think that towards the end, she did come to love Louis XVI in her way. I mean, she saw his, his patience, his courage, his kindness, um, devoted father. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, came to like him. I mean, to begin with, he was very brusque and um, very, very brusque and rude and almost brutal to people. Uh, they called him the butcher, some of the courtiers. But, but I mean, he changed. Um, he was refined by suffering, um, as she was. That's their relationship, I think. That is something that struck me in the book, that it seems at the centre of most events in Marie Antoinette's life were relationships and the different people that she decided to place her trust in or retract her trust from. That seemed to shape a lot of events in her life. Yes, it did. Because you have to remember that um, the, the friend of a monarch becomes a, fav a favourite. They can't, they can't have friends of their own rank because they live abroad. Um, and so her friendship, very, very complicated relationship with, um, with Madame de Polignac um, is a case in point. I mean, she um, got enormous amount of pensions and properties, land, titles, um, through Marie Antoinette, but also through the king, and that was that was a key that was a key friendship. Um, that was the key friendship, really. I think. Um, well, the two the two key friendships um, which had a political bearing were with Madame Pollock with with Barnave. One of the themes of the book is the importance of friendship to her, and she. At one point, when things were going badly, she said, you know, why have I had to be dragged into politics? Why have they made me an intriguer? But the thing is that uh, if you do have friends and favour them, they become favours. They are bound to drag you into politics to preserve their own position. So that's, that's the way it works. And so she um, may, may not have... Um, she complained, but it's inevitable. So we now have we have 87 to 89, strong influence. 89 to 91, middle, little influence. Then 90, the last half of 91, enormous influence. So when you only add it all up, it only comes to about three or four years, but they are crucial years because three years is a long time in a revolution. When you finished the book, how did you come out of it f feeling towards Marie Antoinette? Um, e even before going back, before I started doing this, looking looking at, at this thing, I, I had 
the popular view. I, I didn't. I never thought she said let them eat cake, but I did think of her, you know, as a frivolous lightweight. Um, but I then came to the conclusion that she was not as stupid as think. She was quite bright. She made big mistakes, but also she could have redeemed them. That was John Hardman. His book, Marie Antoinette, The Making of a French Queen, is on sale now, published by Yale University Press. If you want to find out more and read a feature on the final days of Marie Antoinette, head to our website, to historyextra.com forward slash Marie hyphen Antoinette. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when I'll be speaking to Susan Nyman about how Germany and America have faced up to difficult historical legacies. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.